So today I'm going old school and I wrote my notes in my notebook, <laughs> in my classic school notebook. So a couple of weeks ago, I went to, um, I think I shared this with you all already, um, that I, I went to Dallas for our church denominations national gathering, okay? And uh, they had, you know, main sessions and like smaller breakout sessions. And at a couple of these breakout sessions, one of my favorite authors was speaking in. And I, was, I had no idea that he was going to be there. His name is Andrew Root. And when I was a youth pastor, he wrote this really uh, important book called Relational Youth Ministry, which totally changed the way I do youth ministry, but more importantly, how I pastor. And he led these two breakout sessions. And I was like so excited. And they both had to do with this author, this philosopher um, by the name of Charles Taylor. Okay. Um, and I, I was, uh, uh, and, and I, that name sounded familiar. Okay. Uh, Charles Taylor, it, it sounded familiar. And I was wondering, uh, where I, uh, recognized that name and I realized, um, at home, <laughs> I had a book by that author. Okay. Uh, this is a, as you can tell, it's an old book. It was written in, um, 91. Okay. The, uh, ethics of authenticity. And um, I read through this and uh, I didn't really get a lot of it the first time I read through it. And then I heard that speaker, he's a professor at Luther Seminary. Um, he's been there for like 14 years and he's, read, uh, he's written like over a dozen books, right? And he spent both breakout sessions, okay? So like four hours worth just talking about this guy the whole time. And I was like, what's so special about this guy? And so I reread this book and I read it slowly and I'm glad I did because there were things that I just kind of like glossed over that were really, really important. And he talks about uh, some of the uh, issues and some of the values of our modern times, okay? And he was kind of um, like a prophet. He was like for, foreseeing what the 21st century was gonna look like in 1991 when he wrote this book, okay? And, uh, he, he, and he believes that everyone has uh, uh, inner sense of like morals, morality. They might differ from person to person, but most people by and large are trying to live rightly, okay? Uh, but he lays out some of the issues or um, he calls it malaise of moderni modernity, okay? Individualism, instrumental reason and political structures. And th these are laid out for you in the bulletin. Um, uh, individualism, instrumental reason, and political structures, okay? So individualism, okay? Let me read a quote from him in this book. Okay, the first source of worry in modernity is individualism. We live in a world where people have a right to choose for themselves their own pattern of life, to decide in conscience what convictions to espouse, to determine the shape of their lives in a whole host of ways that their ancestors couldn't control, okay? That's kind of like what he defines as individualism. But he says the dark side of individualism is a centering on the self, which both flattens and narrows our lives and makes them poorer in meaning and less concerned with others or society. So individualism by its very nature makes us narcissists. Now, 
for some reason, we like the word individualism, but we cringe at the word narcissism, right? Like if you call someone an individualist, it's kind of like a neutral term. Maybe it's even a compliment, right? Oh, you're such an individual. You're an individualist. But if you call someone a narcissist, you're about to get a slap in the face, right? How dare you call me a narcissist? But what Taylor is, I think, correctly observing is that individualism, by its very nature, by its very essence, is creating a society of narcissists <laughs> where we're just very self-centered. And as a natural result, it makes us less concerned about the needs of others, less concerned about the needs of society as a whole, okay? And the second malaise that he talks about is instrumental reason, okay? Now, what the heck does that mean, right? Instrumental reason, okay? Uh, and let me read for you uh, how he defines instrumental reason. By instrumental reason, I mean the kind of rationality we draw on when we calculate the most economical application of means to a given end. Maximum efficiency, the best cost output ratio is its measure of success. So essentially what he is talking about is capitalism. All right, capitalism, like work hard, uh, you know, make money and grow the economy by whatever means necessary, okay? By whatever means necessary. Now, the awe and wonder of technology that we have come across in our modern times provide a comfortable distraction to the chaos and destruction that we are wreaking in the world. Now, uh, we don't really, what matters the most in instrumental reason is maximum efficiency and the growth of the economy and whatever uh, collateral damage happens along the way is kind of worth it, like in the, in the end, okay, for the advance of technology and economy. So it doesn't matter what kind of destruction we are wreaking havoc in our planet. It doesn't matter if we make the poor even poorer, and it doesn't matter if we ignore the needs of those who are less fortunate, okay? And these are all interrelated, okay? And then lastly, uh, it leads us to political structures, okay? Uh, political structures. And let me define for us what, um, how Taylor defines political structures. It is that the institutions and structures of our industrial techno technological society severely restrict our choices. Okay, and this part's kind of scary, okay? The way he describes it. They force societies as well as individuals to give a weight of instrumental reason that in serious moral deliberation we would never do. And which may even be highly destructive. So because we live in this time of individualism and instrumental reason, uh, we are forced into these political structures. Again, okay? when he says political structures, he's not talking about like politics, like Republican, Democrat, okay? He's really talking about societal structures, okay? These uh, worlds that we've been placed in that force us to live in a way to keep up with these modern times. For example, living in LA, right? It's pretty much impossible to live without a car, right? So everyone has to have a car. And if everyone has a car, it pollutes the air, right? It, it causes damage to uh, our, our ozone and our environment, right? So on and so forth, okay? Another example, Amazon, right? 
all of us shop from Amazon and we kind of have to now. It's like a forced convenience that we have. And Amazon has closed thousands upon thousands of small businesses. And we know that Jeff Bezos is a jerk. We know that he's an a-hole, but we still give him money. We know that he's the richest man in the world and we're still feeding this beast. Well, we can't live without it, right? We can't live without it. Um, smartphones. Smartphones are updating all the time. And can you just imagine the stress that that puts on those factory workers in China? And we're like so angry at, or I'm so, okay, I shouldn't say we. I'm so angry at my iPhone 10 because it's so old and I hate it. It's archaic, right? And when are those people gonna let me have a new phone? Dang it, right? And, and, we, and this um, consumerism has kind of made us into monsters and we can't help it. We can't help it. Same thing goes with um, fas fashion, fast fashion, right? And the havoc that fast fashion wreaks on cheap labor in uh, third world countries and less uh, fortunate countries and um, society as a whole and the environment. Yet we kind of have to keep up so that we don't get mocked. <laughs> we don't get made fun of by our friends and our coworkers and our colleagues. So all this to say is, you know, what the, how does this have to do with keeping it real, right? It's, I have to bring all of these to light because we are placed in the worlds that we live in and it shapes a lot of our identity, right? So how can we keep it real with others when we don't even really know ourselves, right? How can we keep it real with others when we don't really know ourselves? And so this brings us to the central truth for today, which is the best way to keep it real with others is to keep it real with ourselves and with God, okay? The ancient philosopher Socrates said, know thyself. Two simple words, but has such profound meaning. And it's probably one of the most difficult uh, challenges that we face today as individuals. Know thyself. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 139? And if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay, because uh, it'll be right here for us. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Or sorry, it's actually the whole chapter. It's pretty long. It's 24 verses. Um, but I, I think it's really important that we read through all of it. Okay. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 24. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. All right. So uh, we just read from Psalm 139. Okay. It's a bit of a longer psalm, but uh, it was important to read through all of it. Um, and it was written by King David. Okay. It was written by King David and it's divided up into four parts equally. All right. Uh, each conveniently having six verses, all right? Uh, let me go back and show them to you, okay? So the first one, uh, it talks about God's omniscience, okay? God's omniscience, okay? God knows everything about us, all right? Um, and we cannot pretend to be someone that we are not. The second part talks about God's omnipresence, like God being everywhere, okay, all the time, that we cannot hide from God, Okay? And the third part talks about God's creatorship, God as creator, okay? He, 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 he knit us together in uh, our mother's womb, okay? And even there's like stuff in here that kind of sounded like poetic, but actually it makes a lot of sense. They say like the fetus in, in verse 16, the fetus, while the fetus is in the mother's body, it's unformed and it's kind of like uh, coming together like clay, okay? I don't know if you've ever seen those like creepy 3D ultrasounds, uh, of babies in the womb, but it looks like kind of like an unfinished turkey that's baking in the oven. <laughs> uh, so um, a lot of these like uh, are, are poetic, but they're also um, kind of accurate, right? And then the last part talks about God's holiness, okay? It talks about God's holiness and how ultimately in the end, God will restore humanity and bring everyone back to himself. Okay, God will restore humanity and bring everyone back to himself. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, the spiritual journey, right, this path that we are on, this journey that we are walking is not linear, okay? It's not a straight line and neither is it up and to the right, okay? The spiritual journey looks like this, 
Okay, it looks like this. All right, it's a process of going inward. Okay, and if you remember, uh, for those of you who grew up in church and those of you who are uh, kind of familiar with Bible stories, when God created Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, okay, he formed them together uh, out of dirt and they did not come to life until God did what? Does anyone know? Okay, they were almost like statues, but they did not come to life until God breathed into their mouth and their nose. God breathed his spirit into them. So the very way of knowing God is to actually look inward and to look at how God created you. And by observing um, the journey that, and, and the process and the, the ways that God is forming you and making you. Now, um, if you've been at our church for any length of time, uh, you probably know by now that uh, I am critical of almost everybody, okay? Uh, I'm critical of the liberals, the conservatives. I'm critical of the established church. But most importantly, the person that you should be most critical of is yourself. Right? And, and it's important to deconstruct theology. It's important to... Um, you know, observe the things that you were uh, looking at and the things that you were taught in the past. But it's also important to deconstruct yourself. Deconstruct the way that you think and ask yourself, why do I believe the things that I believe? Or why do I behave the way that I behave? Or why do I act the way that I act? And many people go about this, about their lives without ever questioning or criticizing themselves. And therefore, they don't really know themselves. And in order to know where we are as a society, uh, it's important to realize where we're coming from and our history. Okay, so um, generationally, uh, I, I looked up, I did some research on different generations. And uh, as you know, there are the boomer generation, generation X, millennials, and then after us is generation Z which falls in, like my, my daughter falls into that category. But we're just gonna look at three of them because Generation Z, most of them are still kids. So they're too young to really uh, define and categorize yet. So let's look at baby boomers, okay? So these graphics are from this website, Kasasa, but uh, the information, the research comes from Pew Research, okay? P-E-W, okay, which is a really um, popular and well-established uh, statistics and survey company. So baby boomers, they're typically born between 46 and 64. They're currently between the ages of 57 and 75. Um, and these are their different ways that they consume media. Shaping events, post-World War II optimism, the Cold War, the hippie movement. And I'm really surprised they did not put a uh, civil rights movement in here. Okay, that's really, really important. Um, and I wonder why they didn't put that in there. Um, and there's this underlying question that baby boomers have, okay? And that is, what's good? Okay, what's good? So these, this generation, um, they strive for what's good in the world, okay? And this generation are, is the generation that fights for justice, okay? This generation is the generation that uh, fights for freedom, okay? There was also the Vietnam War in this, okay? And um, this is the generation that uh, 
really pursues goodness in the world, okay? And that's kind of like their underlying question. Then we have Generation X. These are people typically born between what's uh, between 65 and 1979 or 80. Uh, their current age is 41 to 56. Um, the way they consume media is like with actual books, magazines. Um, they watch TV or so still, like live TV and shaping events as um, most of them were born after the Cold War. Uh, they, personal computing came about when they were either teenagers or adults, all right? So they didn't necessarily grow up with computers. And they are a smaller population than the baby boomers and millennials, right? So they kind of sometimes feel like the middle child. <laughs> um, I think they were in, um, they were in America, there were like 55 million gen generation X. Um, and before it's like uh, 65 million and millennials is like 68 million, something like that. Um, and finances, they carry the highest debt <laughs> while still raising children and saving for retirement. Now, um, I kind of fall between Generation X and millennials because millennials start around 7980 and this ends around 7980. And so uh, I'm kind of what's called Xennials. Um, that's like people born between 78 and 82 who can go either way, okay? Uh, and the underlying question for Generation X is what's true, okay? What's true? A lot of people in this generation are in the pursuit of truth. So by either um, to their demise or to their benefit, they see the world in dichotomies, in dualities, okay? True and false, good and bad, okay? Or, or uh, uh, right or wrong, okay? They kind of see the world in, in, in this framework, okay? So their underlying question is, what's true? And then that brings us to millennials, which is most of you here. Um, and I know you guys love it when someone tells you who you are. So here we go. Uh, <laughs> born between 1980 and 1994. Their current age is between 25 and 40. This is the way most of them consume, most of you consume uh, media. Shaping events is like the Great Recession, technological explosion of the internet, social media, 9-11. Now, now how, how old were you guys when 9-11 happened? 10? Okay. Uh, Courtney? Seven, seventh grade? Oh, middle, middle school. Second grade. Oh, okay. Okay, so you're like seven, six, seven, eight. Uh, Iris, how old were you around that time? So you guys grew up with 9-11. Okay, that's very uh, impactful, okay, uh, for your upbringing. Okay, so you, you grew up with a fear that I didn't, okay? And that's, that's really important to, to acknowledge, okay? You guys grew up with a fear that I didn't. And kind of like, um, uh, and, and a lot of millennials also, because you grew up with personal computers, smartphones, and the internet, uh, that reveal, that it, it becomes really, really difficult to hide who you are, right? And so there's this growing distrust for authority. There's a growing distrust for um, government. And so 
the underlying question for millennials is what's real? Okay, this is the underlying question for most millennials is what's real? Are you authentic? Are you who you really, uh, who you say you really are? Okay, because the one thing that millennials can't stand is being fake, right? It's fake people, right? Uh, so they don't want to follow a leader who's fake, right? They don't want to, um, uh, like even celebrities, right? Even celebrities, like even if we, if we see that uh, the way that a celebrity lives is incongruent with what they're talking about, like we kind of like don't like them anymore. And it's like, like the underlying question with millennials is what's real, okay? Now I'm not saying generation X people, that's not important, okay? But what it's by and large for baby boomers, the um, underlying question for most of them is what's good. For generation X, the underlying question is what's true. And for millennials, the underlying question is, uh, is what's real, okay? And so again, that brings us back to the question, how can we keep it real with others when we don't really know ourselves very well, okay? And that brings us to today's passage, today's text, and verse, verses one through six really tackles this question. It begins to tackle this question. God knows us better than we know ourselves, okay? God knows us better than we know ourselves. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. But oh, what the... Sorry. Now, in verse six, it says, uh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, um, too lofty for me to attain, which means God knows us better than we know ourselves. If we knew everything that were to happen in our lives, if we were to be revealed everything that happens to us, uh, I don't know about you, but my brain, my heart just might explode. <laughs> I can't handle it all, but God can, right? And he knows us better than we know ourselves. And it's, it's important for us to acknowledge this because we can put our trust in him. And oftentimes, um, you know, we want to know everything there is to know about our life, right? And we ask God to reveal certain things to us, but for some reason, in God's wisdom, he reveals to us like one little thing at a time. Okay? One little thing at a time. So God knows us better than we know ourselves. And the other thing, the other thing that this passage teaches us is uh, we cannot hide from ourselves or God. Okay? We cannot hide from ourselves or God. The second section uh, tackles this beautifully. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. 
and your right hand will hold me fast. What's beautiful about this section is that um, it describes how God is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent, and we cannot hide from God. And he holds us. We are safe in his hand. He guides us, right? And he loves us. He, he, we cannot hide from him, and he holds us lovingly. This reminds me of when um, going back to uh, the creation of humanity with the story of Adam and Eve. You could take it literally or just like as a story, but either way, the truth of it is uh, applicable. When they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, the one tree that God told them not to eat from, uh, they were ashamed, okay? Um, but when God created them, they were already naked, but they were not ashamed. And then after they disobeyed God, they were ashamed, right? And so their physical state did not change. It's just the way that they felt about themselves changed. And so because they were ashamed, and they um, knew that they disobeyed God, they hid from him. They hid from God. And when they were hiding from God, <laughs> uh, God asked them the question, where are you? Where are you? And it's a really silly question because we can't, we can't hide from God. So why in the world <laughs> did God ask them this question? Where are you? It's because he wanted Adam and Eve to ask themselves, why am I hiding? Why am I hiding? What do I have to hide from God? What do I have to fear? And so often we uh, hide from God, okay? Um, but we also kind of hide from ourselves. And what's, what's, uh, easy about not looking inward and not being critical of yourself it's it's much easier to be critical of others isn't it it's much easier to be critical of your boss it's much easier to be critical of uh the president right or government leaders right it's much easier to be critical of um your coworkers, right it but to, can you really be critical with yourself because that's really where true growth happens. That's really where true growth happens is if we're critical with ourselves and look inward. And the last thing that um, this passage teaches us about keeping it real is that God is restoring all humanity back to fullness. Adam and Eve were the ones who disobeyed God and caused the fall of humankind. And Jesus is the one who sacrificed himself, lived that perfect life, and restored humanity back to God. And this is in the last, the latter half of today's passage, which I will not read again. But this reminds me of um, the last two verses of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, um, which is um, one of my favorite verses. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, uh, verses 11 and 12, it, it talks about when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. 
For now, we see dimly as in a mirror, uh, and uh, soon we will be fully known as God knows us. Okay? We don't really, really know ourselves fully. Okay? We are constantly on this journey of self-discovery. And part of the reason why God invites us into a relationship with him is so that we can do it together with God, to discover ourselves with God. And a big reason why, one of the first steps to becoming a follower of Christ is to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness is because that forces us. That forces us to look inward. And that forces us to be critical of ourselves, right? Because we know that no one is perfect, right? So the first thing we have to do is like acknowledge how I've fallen short. And in order to do that, you really have to be critical of yourself. And I'm not saying like critical in a negative way. I'm, I'm saying like uh, objectively observe uh, your life and who you are as a person. For God desires to restore all of humanity back to fullness and back to himself. So the question of the week, uh, I would like all of us and me to ask ourselves is this. How are you hiding from yourself and God? How are you hiding from yourself and from God? In closing, I want to do a practice together with you, if I may. It's a practice called Lectio Divina, which means uh, it's uh, Latin for divine reading. And I just want to read for us the last um, two verses of this passage, okay? And as I do so, uh, close your eyes, and I'm going to read it through three times, okay? I'm going to read it through three times, and just pay attention to how the Holy Spirit is stirring in you, stirring in your spirit, stirring and stirring in your heart, and pay attention to her. Pay attention to her voice, and maybe there's a word or an image or a theme that really grabs you from these two verses. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is sensitive to what you want to reveal to ourselves about ourselves. For this is how true growth really happens. By keeping it real, 
with you, keeping it real with ourselves, we can live lives of authenticity with others. And when we speak, we speak from our core. And when we act, we act from our true selves. Holy Spirit, be with us and guide us and lead us. For we are listening. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a blessed week.